What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Hi, welcome to uh, Funding Lab on Ideation Collective. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Josh Solway. Unfortunately, uh, my co-host, Jess Larson, couldn't be with us today. Um, We've got with us today uh, Raymond Baraska. When it came online, the pulp it produced was so extraordinary that the Japanese, who back then owned the world, would literally bang on our door asking for more of it. It was of that quality. The board, recognizing what a major accomplishment this was, that he actually did it without borrowing any money, but did it with cash flow and tax credits, um, they wanted to give him a $60,000 bonus, and he declined it as a waste of shareholder assets. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Raymond is a, uh, an experienced corporate attorney and securities attorney. He is the founder of Colorado Crowdfunding, which is now the uh, third largest organization uh, for crowdfunding in the country, um, which uh, is no small, uh, no small feat uh, given the attention on crowdfunding. Um, he also is uh, an entrepreneur, working an advisor, working with a number of different companies in Colorado um, to uh, support and uh, expand the uh, the already exploding uh, tech industry there in Colorado. Um, with that, uh, you know, I'd like to say thank you for joining us today, Ray, and uh, looking forward to a, uh, a great discussion here. Thanks very much, Josh, and, and I'm uh, very happy to be here and share with you uh, what I feel has been happening in crowdfunding and, uh, and also give you just a little sense of, um, of what my background has been and, uh, and talk generally about what I see is the finance landscape right now for startups, and I think what still is required to be put in place as we move forward. Excellent, excellent. Well, you know, we'd like to start, if we can, with um, with your story. You know, we everybody, you know, the bulk of our audience is these are entrepreneurs or soon to be entrepreneurs or certainly uh, professionals looking for. Uh, more and more information and, and models of success. And um, so we, we wanted to, we like to hear from our guests sort of what your journey is and what your path was. Because 
you know, I can say as a, uh, you know, as an attorney in New York, uh, having been with, you know, major firm and, and on my own, uh, the legal world is not necessarily the most entrepreneurial world that you are clearly have followed an entrepreneurial journey. So we want to hear about that. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the Raven story uh, from sure. Silicon Valley through to Colorado? Sure. Uh, well, let me, let me start at the beginning, which is usually a good place. Um, being, an being an entrepreneur has always been at the center of my interests, um, not only um, as a finance person, but even as a lawyer. When I decided uh, to go to law school um, in 1975, the reason I decided to go to law school had very little to do with practicing law and everything to do with trying to level the playing field between very large corporate law firms on one hand and relatively small solo or say three or four lawyer uh, firms that were opposing them. Um, I actually started my career in the law by attending one of the very first ABA accredited paralegal programs in the, in the nation. It was a program um, that was created, kind of a, a joint venture, if you will, between Neil Shane, who used to write a column for the New York Law Journal about economics and the law on one hand, and Delphi University in Garden City on the other. And uh, my particular curriculum consisted of securities law, corporate law, and legal research. Out of that program, I got a job with um, a corporate strike suit lawyer um, very interesting. Office is off of Times Square. This would have been in 1974, actually. Um, and what I learned is that it's quite extraordinary, at least back then, the imbalance between the corporations that he was suing on one hand and the, uh, the resources that he had to do that with versus the resources that the corporations had and how they could respond. Now, notwithstanding that, he had a pretty effective practice. But it struck me at how unfair it was that one side should have those kind of resources and the other side shouldn't. And early on, I recognized that perhaps one of the ways to create a better balance between the two forces was to automate the processes. So I was looking to the computer and that was fairly early on when computers were not really available um, to individuals on a regular basis. There was some hobbyists that were doing some work with computers, but for someone to have their own computer was really quite novel and, and, and very, very unusual. And so my thought from the get-go was, how can we use automation and, and specifically, how can we use computers to write the imbalance between the large firms that were representing substantial um, deep pocketed interests on one hand and the smaller firms that perhaps were representing um, the plaintiffs who had been uh, taken advantage of or were disenfranchised in some fashion. So there was always this question of equity and how do you balance that and how do you use technology for that purpose? And that's what I went to law school really for. And then what happened was, um, and it took to my great and everlasting delight was I got seduced by business. Um, I, I began to get close to business, um, and after being close to business for a while, I came to love business. 
So my perspective um, as a lawyer was always from the perspective of being a facilitator of business and business transactions. In other words, the can-do guy instead of the don't-you-dare-do-it kind of guy. Find ways to get it done instead of ways to block your client from achieving whatever objective it was they wanted to achieve. And it made me very, it made me very proactive, and it also made me very um, welcome in business offices because I had that kind of bent, that kind of perspective, that kind of, of uh, attitude. Well, that's what everyone wants, right? I mean, everybody wants uh, the lawyer that views his training. And I can relate to that, that the whole reason I went to law school was from working with an attorney just like that in my first company in, in Silicon Valley, actually, who I was so impressed by because he just found ways to get things done, even uh, when dealing with, I mean, things, you know, you know complexities that he couldn't quite grasp to the level of these technicians, but certainly could get at the issues and find creative ways to get things done. And I thought, what a powerful training. Um, and that's what it should be. Yes, and I, and I agree. I think when lawyers can work in a very cooperative fashion with business people, instead of viewing them as the opposition, I think great things can be achieved. Um, at any rate, uh, I continued my journey. I, uh, I went to work actually f in house uh, for a medical device manufacturer, of a relatively small firm, but, but NYSE listed. And then after that, I, I got a gig with a, a global ad agency, um, did that for a couple of years. And then I landed in a, in a place that I will forever have the fondest memories of because it really was a place that. That, that expressed and lived the best that business can be. It was a paper company called Great Northern Nakusa Corporation. And the head of it, the, the heart, the beating heart of that company was a gentleman named Robert Hellendale, whom I don't think anyone has ever heard of after he died, which is, <laughs> which is an incredible, incredible tragedy because the lessons that I learned at his side were lessons that have stood me in good stead for 30 years. Um, let me just give you a, a little insight into the kind of individual this was, and you'll see the contrast between so many of the, of the heads of major corporations today and, and how this guy operated his company. And he was really solely responsible for its growth. He was the shepherd behind it uh, for so many years, even though he wasn't named chairman until fairly late in his career. But what happened was, in 1983, he decided he was, that there was a, a situation down in Mississippi, south of Hattiesburg, where an, a Finnish company, uh, Kimina Oi, had run into uh, trouble getting regulatory clearance for a new sawmill that wanted to build on the Leaf River. And he came to their, quote, rescue. Uh, managed to negotiate a deal where they ended up with 5% of the joint venture, which they were satisfied with because they were, they were just mired in muck. They just couldn't extricate themselves from a terrible situation from a regulatory perspective. And with that, based on our cash flow and tax credits and without borrowing a dime, he built a $600 million pulp mill, which when it came online, and it came online 
uh, without a hiccup, which is unusual when you're building a brand new paper machine or a brand new uh, paper com uh, pulp company. Um, and it was it was a turnkey operation with uh, with Halliburton's uh, Brown and Root, and they were terrific turnkey contract contractors. Um, when it came online, the pulp it produced was so extraordinary that the Japanese, who back then owned the world, would literally bang on our door asking for more of it. It was of that quality. The board, recognizing what a major accomplishment this was, that he actually did it without borrowing any money, but did it with cash flow and tax credits, um, they wanted to give him a $60,000 bonus, and he declined it as a waste of shareholder assets. Wow. That's the kind of business person that I was surrounded by at this organization. And that's and so important, right? Because the integrity factor, you know, is, is really everything. And I think that's something that, you know, people obviously long for, uh, you know, a return to that. And in some instances, I think we're seeing more of that and some less, right? Yeah, yeah. And when I see it, I recognize it as such. Um, and and I'll, I'll mention that later on when we talk a little bit about um, this very interesting meeting I had this weekend with the WeFunder folks, which is a, a Jobs Act a crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding platform uh, that I have some experience with at this point. But at any rate, from there, um, the company was actually the subject of a, the very first hostile takeover in the pulp and paper industry. And so Georgia Pacific Corporation acquired that company in 1990. Um, I happened to have a really good friend who had been my um, uh, my uh, food and drug instructor um, in law school, uh, a guy named Bob Anderson, who was the general counsel for Richardson Vicks and had remained on with Vicks when Procter & Gamble acquired them in the mid-'80s. And he recruited me into their Vicks business. And that was really interesting because it was a totally different kind of experience for me. There I was the regulatory lawyer trying to save products from recall by all sorts of hostile forces, competitors, the FDA, uh, consumer protection agencies, the uh, consumer uh, protection um, uh, organizations, um, and learn something about, in some sense, the rounded corners of business and how you really have to um, be a lot more pragmatic when you're looking at a world that sometimes is out of balance when it just comes to common sense. Um, did a good job there, was recognized at the end when, when they decided to move the VIX business to Cincinnati as one of the, quote, old VIX guys, even though I had only been there a couple of years, because of the way I was able to quickly pick up on the, on the temperament of the business, the tempo of the business, and do some pretty good work in a very short period of time. After that, I actually went into my own consulting firm uh, we were doing a lot of projects um, in the pulp and paper industry. And what was happening back then is this would have been in the uh, kind of the mid-90s, is a lot of the established paper companies were going through um, consolidation, industry consolidation, and they were casting off assets that were old and non-competitive. And a lot of these assets were in or near um, uh, downtown areas in major cities. Uh, small paper machines that were slow, that were no longer competitive as the industry continued to consolidate and cast off assets. So we would go after those mills uh, for the purpose of converting them into recycled uh, paper mills. 
and the and the and the business model is pretty simple. The waste that you're looking for is in the city, and the customers that you're looking for is in the city. And one of the largest costs associated with paper manufacturers transportation, paper in a roll tends to be pretty heavy. It comes in tons, and so the transportation cost is is quite significant. If you can just reduce that, and you can basically reduce your cost of raw material because they want to get rid of the waste paper, right? And provided you've perfected the technology to be able to recycle it without causing further damage to the environment, which obviously is a real stumbling block even today as we look look at this at this issue, um, you could actually make some money even with older, um, uh, less competitive machines if they were going to make version paper. And so we spent about four years doing that, and then a um, a former colleague of mine who had been very successful turning around a Midwestern paper company after uh, Georgia Pacific uh, acquired Great Northern Nakusa and he left Great Northern to join this company, uh, Arnie Nemero. He uh, had become president of a company called Wausau Paper. And within four years, he had basically turned Wausau Paper around, the, he increased their market cap from 200 million to 800 million, a four, fourfold increase in market cap. Um, and was the hero of the industry, and he was recruited into a company called Bowater, which was a newsprint producer. Um, his predecessor had actually acquired a company that was actually a company that had been part of Great Northern Nakusa many years earlier that was cast off by Georgia Pacific. Um, his new company, Bowater, had acquired that, that asset from Georgia Pacific, and the company was called Great Northern Paper Company. Great Northern Paper Company itself was a great example of what entrepreneurs are capable of doing. Uh, Great Northern Paper it was a storied company. It really um, called the shots in Maine, the state of Maine, for many, many years. And, and its origin is fascinating. What had happened was the newsprint producers in the East, on the East Coast, basically principally in the Northeast, and the newsprint producers in the Midwest along the Fox River had gotten together and colluded on newsprint pricing. That the collusion ultimately resulted in a cartel, a newsprint cartel in this country. And that cartel was actually the origin of the current day international paper company, which is still in existence. Um, what happened was several entrepreneurs decided to go to the newspaper publishers, since the prices of newsprint were going up, and convince them to fund the be very beginning of what would ultimately become a brand new newsprint mill in the northeastern remote corner of the state of Maine in a place called Millinocket. And the newspaper publishing families decided to pony up. And with the money that they had raised with these company, with these families, they went to the Maine legislature, which had just fairly recently gotten its, its freedom from Massachusetts as a territory um, and convinced them that they needed to give this company, this new company, eminent domain rights, the ability to build roads, and the ability to dam up the river, the Penobscot River. And the legislature gave them that authority. And so wow. this great northern paper essentially became a quasi-governmental authority. When the, the mill started up, it started up with 10 paper machines, brand new spanking newspaper machines, and it quickly <clears throat> became the go-to place for newsprint in the country. And so papers 
storied papers like, <clears throat> excuse me, the Boston Globe, the New York Times became customers of this brand new newsprint mill. And it really was the paradigm of the newsprint industry for 50 years. Uh, and it's, these, these paper machines started up in 1899. And until 1960, it really ran the show in, in terms of the newsprint business. Um, well, that's an interesting, interesting paradigm, sorry, for you to come from, right? Because now you take that experience into you know, the Silicon Valley where something, you've seen an entire institutionalized industry completely reform itself. And how many times did that happen in your, and I'm sure we'll get there in your experience when you made, which I'm interested to hear how you got there, into Silicon Valley. Yeah, and so what happened was Arnie Nemero decided to have me go up to Maine to be his chief strategist. I, w I became the CFO um, and the head of administration for the company. I was one of three people actually running uh, Great Northern Paper. And he wanted me to come up with a strategy. Now, my, my decision, look, looking at all the assets, we, we uh, uh, had a huge amount of cogen power we could wield to uh, places like Hydro-Quebec, uh, we had uh, 2.1 million acres. We owned 10% of the state's land mass. We had this eminent domain, quasi-governmental authority. I saw these assets as being assets that were incredibly valuable. And so I wanted to save Great Northern Paper. And I started to explore, what could you do with paper, which obviously was going to have a troubled future, that would nevertheless ensure the viability of Great Northern Paper as a company well into the future? And I came up with a strategy that included five or six different grades that you would actually use the base paper and then convert that paper into a higher value product. One of the ones that I focused on was laminated cardstock. And the reason I did that was the last laminated cardstock mill in the country was just about to be closed in Michigan. And I had been able to acquire their top laminated card um, a craftsman. Um, in my earlier um, um, journey in doing my own paper mill deals, I had come across him. And so I knew something about the laminated card business. But more importantly, I knew about the new areas in which laminated card stock would become important, one of which was a company called Wizards of the Coast that was producing a card game called, um, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Magic, The Gathering. Now, this was a very interesting product because they had grown from zero revenues to 300 million in revenues in less than three years. And in the early 90s, that was pretty good. Uh, but more importantly, this, this card game was a very different kind of card game. It was collectible, the card. It was tradable, the card. But you could also play a game with the card. So it had multiple uses. And Magic the Gathering quickly caught on. But more importantly, Sports cards were going in a different direction as well. And the cost, the total cost of the paper in a sports card was something like 3% of the total cost of actually manufacturing a sports card. So you could increase the price of laminated card stock literally infinitely, and it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference to the laminated card manufacturers because it was such a small percentage of their total cost. Okay, so I saw a tremendously profitable business in that. And that was one of the five different niches that I was going to put essentially the paper we were already making into. And I could have done that for $5 million in conversion. Unfortunately, 
some very sophisticated uh, international consulting firms, business consulting firms. We actually had two of them on board, one exclusively pulp and paper and one exclusively uh, a general, like a McKinsey. It wasn't McKinsey, but it was very much like a McKinsey and a competitor McKinsey. They came on board. The first one, the business consulting firm said, sell everything. And the, uh, the pulp and paper consulting firm said, spend a billion dollars to improve your newsprint machine. And here I was recommending a strategy that would cost $5 million. Well, ultimately, unfortunately, my, my proposal did not win the day. Instead, what won the day was selling all the assets, but then the money was taken from the sale of those assets and redeployed in newsprint mills in Canada. And very, very shortly after that, Bowater went into bankruptcy. Now, if you look at the market today for laminated cardstock, if you go into Walmart and you check out at the, at the cashier's counter and you look to the side and you see row after row after row of these kinds of cards and what a simple package of five cards is selling for, you will understand the magnitude of what it was I was proposing and what I saw so many years earlier. Wow, interesting. I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's a different, uh, it's a different sort of market than, and so how, how then from there to Silicon Valley? Okay. After they decided they did not want to, uh, to implement my plan, which I would have been very willing to stay with, I decided, you know what? They are paying me way too much money here. I was earning you know, 10 times what the average Maine uh, worker earned. Maine is a very poor state, particularly in the eastern half of the state where I was working. Uh, I just couldn't abide that. It just, and, I, and I was just pushing papers around. And I said to them, I need to leave. Um, and so they were agreeable, and I was able to trigger um, a tin parachute. I uh, took my cash, went down to the seacoast <laughs> while I was planning out my next step, and decided that I was going to go out to California. And part of it was driven by family. My, my parents, um, almost all of my siblings, were on the West Coast. Um, I had a single sibling in, on Long Island, uh, but everybody else was in the, on the West Coast, and most of them were actually in Northern California. So I decided, uh, since I was also in the middle of a divorce at the time, and my and my uh, spouse was taking my kids to Florida to be with her family, I decided I would join my family out on the West Coast, and so I did that. Uh, my first gig was actually working in uh, in Schwab stock transfer department, um, late '90s, uh, maybe like '96, '97. Um, and, and that was at a time when the, when the market was just going crazy. The volume was enormous. Um, and then from there, which was a short-lived gig, it was intended to be temporary in my mind, I got a gig with Prudential Capital where I helped one of their um, very high-powered, brilliant uh, vice presidents, but who had a very hard time with, um, with uh, assistance, with, 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 with help, uh, keeping them and keeping them satisfied. I decided to work with him. And the deal was I'd work with you for a year so you can stabilize your working relationship with your assistant. Um, but then I need to move on. I want to go back into my career as a, as a corporate lawyer because I saw great opportunities occurring in Silicon Valley. And I had a great year at, at, uh, at Prudential Capital, learned a lot about the mezzanine lending business from them. From this, He actually was an ex-Masado officer, Israeli intelligence. He was, when he came to the U.S., he worked in Prudential's uh, workout program in Newark. 
So tough business to be in. And then he came out to the West Coast to be one of the uh, vice presidents of their Western region, uh, their, their mezzanine lending business. And so I left there and I interviewed with a whole bunch of firms. Um, uh, Cooley, um, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other firms. Uh, the name escapes me now. But one of the firms I interviewed with was Oric. Oric was, was a very old white shoe firm. Um, it had grown up the city of San Francisco. It had, uh, you know, judges all over the state who were named either Oric or Harrington or Sutcliffe. Um, they were part of the history of San Francisco. They, they had Wells Fargo as a client. They had Bank of America as a client. They did all the bond work for the city of San Francisco. And they were very slow to recognize the opportunity that existed in Silicon Valley. And so when they arrived, first arrived in 1996, they were unwelcome. They had a really hard time recruiting lawyers to work for them. They had a really hard time recruiting clients. Uh, they were the suits from San Francisco. Even uh, as close as San Francisco, and it was oh, yeah. that, were that, was Sensini sort of already the sort of uh, flagship there by that time? They sort of owned it by now, by the, at that time? Or, or who were the sort of heavyweights? At oh, the heavyweights then were, um, were obviously Wilson. Uh, but but more importantly, the, the the real heavyweight at that point in time, more than any other firm, was the Venture Law Group. It was really fascinating. The very first time I went to visit them, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I drove up Sand Hill Road to the very end, where it, where it uh, it dead ends in a in a uh, what do they call it? Uh, like a roundabout. Uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the name. Anyway. Cul-de-sac, basically, right? It's, it's sort of at the end there. Yeah, cul-de-sac. Yeah, yeah. Comes to a cul-de-sac at the end. And right at the end, there are two buildings. Both of them are giant temples of, of, of finance and, and commerce. They are identical white stone buildings, but huge. One of them was Goldman Sachs, and the other was the Venture Law Group. And, and the reason they were so successful back then is that, is that uh, Craig Johnson, who was a brilliant, brilliant, a corporate and, and securities lawyer, had decided on a different model, a totally different model. And part of it was what ultimately led to the firm's demise as well, which is to take interest in their client companies as part of their compensation. And so when Silicon Valley was doing very well in the 90s, he was doing very well and the firm was doing very well and they were paying their associates an incredible amount of money. Um, but more importantly, he was also redesigning the way you actually practice law. Um, he was departing from the Wilson-Sonsini model. He was far more progressive than even the Cooley model at the time. And the good news was because Auric really needed to gain a foothold in Silicon Valley, and because the Venture Law Group really needed to have a full-service law firm connected to their business, because what would happen is their clients would IPO, and because there would be so many other legal issues that needed to be addressed once they're a public company, such as dealing with the Food and Drug Administration, Federal Trade Commission, uh, the, the Energy Department, I mean, you name it, you need all these different specialties, you know, taxes, um, that the skill set that you have to bring them to IPO is not necessarily the skill set that you need to continue to retain them as a client. And so there was a wonderful opportunity for both Auric and the Venture Law Group to benefit from a joint venture. And that's what the office in which I worked was really. It was a joint venture between the Venture Law Group 
and or Carrington and Sutcliffe. And it was a wonderful place to learn about venture capital in a very exciting time in the venture capital industry. Because before the dot-com era, venture capital was not on the lips of everybody. But after the dot-com era, venture capital was very much here to stay and, and in a very significant way, both good and bad. Interesting. I mean, and that's a real, what a place to have been and what a time to have been there. Yeah. And so then from there, you end up, obviously, you know, after, you know, we'll get into what you saw there in that experience. Then you end up in Colorado and how just, and how does that sort of play what, in? What happened was, uh, was I started to see that um, a lot of the business models that were starting to come to the office were not as solid as the business models that had been coming to the office earlier on. And so I started to see the writing on the wall. More importantly, I started to see some of the newer, um, uh, the newer arrivees, if you will, um, not really being very wise in terms of how they use their Series A round. I saw how they spent their money, and it seemed to me foolish. Um, and so I started to become very concerned about the clientele, and I started to become very concerned about the viability of what was happening long term. And so I asked my recruiter to find another opportunity for me, and she found one, but it actually was in Auric. It was back in the corporate headquarters. They were going to be putting in place a, a new position that would be mentoring not only uh, paralegals, uh, corporate securities paralegals, but also young lawyers that were entering the firm because there really was no time for the partners to spend mentoring people anymore. And that we see that playing out in a very significant way over the past 10 years. Mentoring has become, um, you know, a thing that just doesn't get done in large firms anymore. And so a lot of these young lawyers are kind of aimless and, and they feel underserved. And I've met some brilliant young lawyers here in Colorado who have expressed that kind of frustration and have left large firms, good firms with good good names, because precisely because of the lack of mentoring. Anyway, so that was very exciting to me because I've always been intrigued by the concept of teaching. I, I taught when I was in college as an undergraduate. I taught uh, literature to other undergraduates, and I and I actually worked in the South Bronx as a remedial reading teacher for a while. Loved it, but just realized that the system was broken and I could not fix it. Um, so I was intrigued. But more importantly, it was a position of great business responsibility because you'd be having a lot of uh, non-lawyer and non-secretarial help actually reporting into that position on a global basis. So that was pretty exciting. Um, but what happened was the dot-coms imploded and then 9-11 occurred and the firm lost its appetite for those kinds of outreach uh, programs. And so they transferred me into doing some bankruptcy work for a lot of the dot-coms that had failed, which I didn't like very much. And then kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, they transferred me into doing a backup for a lot of the CMOs, uh, collateralized mortgage obligation deals that were being done. Now, this would have been early 2001, 2002. Um, so the deals were still of a reasonably good quality. Um, but I couldn't see myself spending the rest of my life working on CMOs, quite honestly. <laughs> well, that must that's some foresight, if nothing else, right? Yeah. And, and so... What happened was I happened to be simultaneously dating. Uh, it started to date again after my divorce. Um, and there was a woman here in Colorado who contacted me on one of the dating sites and said, do you speak to women in Colorado? And I said, absolutely. And I did. And we started talking. And I began to realize that this was a person that was very much like me in terms of her values, 
um, her wisdom, her stability, uh, how grounded she was, her religious conviction. We both share deep, deep faith. Um, and um, I said, you know what? This looks like the person that I've kind of been looking for my entire life. And based on that, I decided to relocate to Colorado. I was kind of done with what I was doing in California. I'd been there for five years. I, I wanted to move out of the place in any event. And this Colorado seemed to be a, a good place to land, especially given what Colorado looked like back in 2002 when I met her and married. Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I came out here to Colorado, and that's when I was shocked by how poorly served our entrepreneurs were here by the, by the uh, venture capital and angel community, because a lot of them had decent business models, but none of them had any cash. Um, and so there was a real shriveling up, whereas clients in Silicon Valley, the, at least the, the marginally decent ones, were still getting cash. And the best example I can give you is financial engines. Financial engines was uh, had just gone uh, several months before um, I joined uh, uh, the joint venture down in Menlo Park, had come in, uh, had done a C round. And back then, if you needed to do more than a C round to IPO your business, you were kind of like, you know. <laughs> um, any rate, long story short, I followed their, their history once I got out here, and they did a, a D round, an E round, an F round, a G round. They went public in 2010. Uh, at 12 bucks a share, and until very recently, when they got slapped with a patent infringement suit, they were trading $38 a share. I kind of lost track of them after that, but they are a huge, huge presence in the financial advisory business in terms of uh, providing kind of a support for financial the financial advisory industry. And, and I think that collectively, uh, their clients have like two, $478 billion of assets under management. So it's a very substantial firm now very credible. And yet back then, in my view at least, it was no better than some of the businesses we had out here, but but our businesses were cash starved. because so they were given the life support to figure it out, right? Exactly. They were given the life support. That's a great way of saying it. That's exactly dead on. Um, and so that concerned me. And I happened, happened to see a, a presentation. I don't know if it was Vic Ahmed uh, at the time, but it was, it was some serial entrepreneur, of, uh, an, an Indian entrepreneur from India, who told us uh, at a Rocky Ventures Club meeting that the ingredients for a successful um, uh, startup ecosystem were four, large corporations, uh, a university willing to, to, to occupy the center, um, startups, and then intermediaries who would basically connect these resources and assets to one another. And what we seemed to be missing at the time, in my mind, oh, and the large venture capital firms as well. So venture capital, large venture capital firms, uh, large university willing to occupy the center, large corporations, and startups. And then, oh, I'm sorry, intermediaries as well. These intermediaries, these lawyers and accountants that could move seamlessly through the landscape and connect people to other people. And it seemed that what we lacked here was a university willing to occupy that center. And it also seemed that we lacked um, truly deep pockets. Um, and then and what had happened as well was that some of the telecoms that had pulled up stakes and left our telecoms, our small telecom startups, our dot-coms here, high and dry, they were missing as well. And so one of the things I thought we could remedy fairly quickly was getting a great university in place. And I targeted DU for that because 
they had just gone through a tough rebuild uh, themselves, and they had become very successful in terms of their endowment. Uh, they seem to be the kind of private university I think you kind of need to really drive a really vibrant ecosystem. Public universities tend to be subject to political wins so often and so much infighting that oh, sometimes not a lot gets done. Um, and so I, I looked at Denver uh, DU, and I petitioned the chancellor to meet with him to talk about these issues. I eventually got a meeting with the vice chancellor. And um, I can't talk about that meeting because I signed an NDA. But it was, it was interesting, needless to say, that there, did, there seemed to be a, a, like a lot of parallel thinking going on at the time. Uh, we still haven't seen any university emerge as the equivalent of a Stanford or an MIT. Um, but I'm hoping that that may soon change. I was very encouraged, for instance, by the uh, the head of CTA, Colorado Technology Association, leaving the CTA, which is a, a premier organization, does a great job here in Colorado promoting technology and te technology companies. I saw him left uh, CTA, which is a very powerful organization, and go over to DU, uh, Denver University, as a, a major um, uh, executive with, uh, with DU. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, any rate, so, so I decided to, to do what I could, and I, I set up a small investment banking business, Wyndham Peaks Capital, and did what I could. It, it was very frustrating, but did what I could to try to facilitate capital for startups, as well as to help, on a sell side, um, entrepreneurs who wanted to sell their business be able to sell their business uh, once they grew tired of it. Interesting. I mean, and, and I can see that because, you know, uh, being out of, you know, I went, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a CU buff. So, you know, I'm a Boulder grad myself. And it's one of those things that I look at that uh, ecosystem that they have there in Boulder, which is a phenomenal as a microcosm of, of what, what you've described in Colorado as well. Um, and, and guys like Brad, you know, like Brad felt just phenomenal uh, work that they do in that community. But it's, I, you know, while CU has this role, you know, University of Colorado has this role that they sort of flirt with that ecosystem, uh, all the feedback I get is it sort of fits and starts. But they're moving in that direction. But as you say, I mean, I think your instinct, to, you know, if I could say it, is you know, going after something where you have a little more concentrated decision-making power makes some sense. Um, but hopefully, uh, and I think to a large extent, it doesn't seem that the university, the larger universities are sort of coming along uh, uh, quite a bit in recent years. Um, but uh, I'm sure the pace is never as, as, as you might want, as, as you know, might be necessary or desirable. Yeah. So, so what happened was, uh, somewhat frustrated in my investment banking business, uh, not being able to connect with entrepreneurs soon enough so as to save them from, let's say, some of the heartache that they go through, uh, caused in part not only by their own lack of sophistication, their own naivete, but also by, by service providers willing to pounce on them too early and not, not say to themselves, you know what, let's make sure that, that these folks have some traction first have some, um, that they're on the right course, that they conserve their money and use it wisely. Let's invest something in them so that ultimately they will prosper. And you know what, once they prosper, if we give them good advice, if we, if we shepherd them in a, in, a, in a less than a fully self-interested way, 
in their interest as opposed to just our own interest, that that in the end, we will prosper too, that a rising tide in essence does really float all boats, truly. Um, Jim, I was, I'm sorry, go on. No, no, please go ahead. And, and I was intrigued because there were some folks in the state at the time who I believe share those those values and, and that kind of approach. But I learned to my sad surprise that very often it was more talk than reality. And they would use the talk as a cover to basically um, get themselves uh, some early compensation. One of the things that stunned me was we were, uh, my, one of my colleagues and I were invited to talk to DU a couple of years ago when they were thinking about putting their first entrepreneurial center together. And, and because we really wanted them to succeed, we invited some folks in who were talking the talk at the time. Um, and to our utter amazement and, and, and dismay, they had managed to back the head of that center into a tentative agreement to pay them, the three of them, $60,000 from the get-go. And we were stunned, my colleague and I. And so after the meeting, we went up to this individual and we said, Whatever you do, do not do business with these people. They are wow. acting in a very predatory way. And so we became much more guarded in terms of who we kind of let into the house because we saw that a lot of people do talk the talk, but very few people deliver ultimately on what they promise they're going to be able to deliver on. Well, and that's so important because, I mean, certainly being in New York, it's, uh, you know, it's it's rife here and, and maybe people have their guard up a little more here in that sense. but. Uh, it's so important to have a good guide in dealing with vetting, dealing with knowing who you need on the bus. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes, so we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes and to learn more about child rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.